Okay, uh, welcome to my summer lair. I have a very special and unique and slightly different guest. I tend to interview a lot of like filmmakers and writers and creative people, but you do some creative work as well. Introduce yourself and what it is that you do. Okay, my name is Sheila Regeer. I'm like a boring ex-public servant kind of thing. <laughs> You're selling <laughs> but, it already. But, um, but my... My life's work right now, really, is as chair of the Basic Income Canada Network. I've been chair for a few years now, but I'm also a founding member of the organization, and we've been active in Canada as part of an international affiliate since 2008. Okay, because we were just talking about this in the bar with some of the staff and stuff. We record in the Pacific Junction Hotel Bar. Let's do a very basic definition of what basic income is. Very simple, because I know there's a lot of layers and we're going to get into all that, but yep. let's give us like something small to work with and we can kind of build up from there. There sure are. And there are all kinds of different basic incomes once you get into it. But I think the essentials are that it is an unconditional cash transfer, usually from governments to individuals. And I think one of the easiest ways I find to explain what it is, is to explain an example of what it isn't. So for anyone who's familiar with social assistance in this country and most other places, it is highly conditional, highly stigmatizing, totally inadequate. You're talking about things like welfare, so, unemployment insurance. Well, welfare in particular. Unemployment insurance, I mean, some of those social insurance programs are set up for different purposes. But the idea that we have this, you know, welfare, social assistance program that helps people in their time of need is absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't. It harms as much as it helps what people have to go through in order to get a few pennies to pretend they survive, I mean, it's crazy what our system does to people. It's very judgmental, it's very punitive, and people spend so much time jumping through hoops to meet other people's requirements. So the opposite side of that is a basic income, and we actually have examples in Canada of what a kind of basic income could look like. There are two. First is for seniors, old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. They're based on age and the number of years you've been in this country. So almost everybody who's 65 qualifies. If you need it, you get it. With OAS, almost everybody gets it. If you earn a whole lot of money, they start clawing it back. But it's non-judgmental. There are no other requirements that you have to meet. Nobody cares how you get other money or how you spend your money. It's just you live your own life. The other partial basic income idea is children's benefits that we've had for about a generation in Canada now. Like and baby again, bonus? and Yeah. So baby bonus was marginal. When I got mine when my kids were really little, it maybe bought a week's groceries. Now with the child benefit, it's enhanced. It's much more directed proportionally to people with low income. So for anybody struggling on the low end of the income spectrum with precarious work and, you know, that sort of thing, it represents a significant amount of stability and security for those families. So what attracted you to this idea? Like you said, you've been, doing, you've been on the board here since 2008. So you've been, this is 10 years now. Oh, but it yeah. goes way, way back. Yeah. Way, way, way <laughs> so, back. Yeah, you can't, so, you can't tell on radio. I'm yeah. pretty old. But yeah, so what attracted you to this idea of basic income? So it's hard to answer that question really simply. I, I think there is just so many, there are so many parts of my life that lead to this as kind of the only sensible answer to lots of things. A lot of the work that I've done throughout my career has been on gender equality, for example, with a particular focus on unpaid work. So work that's done outside of the market economy. And, and this is really important for the basic income debate because you have people saying that delinking the idea of work and income is really scary. Yeah, because people would lose their identity. Any mother on this planet knows that there is no link between work and income. You work and work and work and work to raise your children and you get no income out of it until child benefits came along and you do get this source of basic income. 
So the same thing applies to most people. People want to work, they want to contribute to society, there's all kinds of things in their lives they want to do. So delinking work and income should not be a scary thing for human beings. The, the other couple of things that I would mention, I mean, in one respect, I sort of had a basic income of my own at one point. When I was a young single parent, I was going to grad school. It was in a period of time, pre-Mike Harris, when there was a family benefit program that was much easier to access and relatively kinder than general welfare for people with children. And I was on that program for about a year and a bit, I guess, while I was in grad school. I had one visit from a worker. I got on the program. I got my checks. I didn't hear from anybody again until I wrote to tell them, I've got a job, thank you, goodbye. At one point, however, when I got a short-term position that would have enabled me, it's a practicum in the, in the graduate program, working for an employer where they would have been able to pay me a reasonable sum of money for that term. And I said, no, thank you. Because under these rules, which are worse now, but still existed then, if I had more than $200 a month, I would come to somebody's attention and I would have to fill out paperwork, and I would start to be judged, and people would notice. And that was not worth it to me. So, and then I went on, I was executive director of the National Council of Welfare for the last few years of, of my career, and we went cross-country talking with people who are within the welfare system, with community organizations, and I mean, there's no question that our current system is just so broken, it's unbelievable. You touched upon this word a couple of times, which is unjudged. And uh, when you get the money, then you you have a certain amount of freedom there. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Because, like, I understand what you're saying. With, there's a lot of conditions that come with, like, uh, money and especially when the government is involved and you have to do these things and you, can, you have to be making so much money and you have to be a certain age and you have to do all these things. But what does that mean exactly when you get just free money? Is that what you're basically talking about? So... I mean, some people look at it as free money. I don't see it that way. I think, and, and I think most people don't. I think in general, most people come to this from a solid ethical foundation to begin with. There is, and we've got faith-based organizations interested in basic income now. There are basic tenets of every major faith, including indigenous traditions around the world that have some sense of talking about the common good and about looking after each other and about sharing bounty and about the dangers of anybody getting too rich and powerful. That exists everywhere. And I think it exists for people in general in society. I mean, we are a social species. We can't function without each other. So an interest in the common good matters. The second way I would answer that is that it, so it, it's about sharing the bounty that the earth has now that almost everything has been converted to private property from land to intellectual property, whatever. It's really hard for people to claim their share of humanity and share of the earth's resources and bounty and whatever wealth we've been able to create that's going to some people, not everybody. The other way to look at it is you have lots of people who are willing to put up, quote unquote, free money to businesses. It's called investment. Mm -hmm. This is investing in people instead of things. I like that. You mentioned like the common good. Would this be considered then a redistribution of money or a redistribution of power, for example? Because you, you kind of touched yeah. upon both of those things. So. Is it either or? Is it both? Or what is it exactly? So, yeah, so that's a great question. I think people focus too much and not enough on money at the same time. So we have to understand what money is. Money's an exchange system. I mean, that's what it is. It means I get to drive my car here and put in a tank of gas without having to exchange some chickens for the gas. Right. I mean, money makes the world go around. It's a system of exchange. It works beautifully in lots and lots of ways. Markets work well. People need access to markets. I mean, it's, it's the way we function. But also in this society, money is power. 
it has become power. And if you don't have money in a monetized economy and in a market system, you are excluded. You are left out. So anybody who talks about free market is talking nonsense because if you have a whole lot of people who can't get in, their decisions don't count for anything. So it means the people with money and power and wealth are making the decisions for everybody. Just because YouTube is free doesn't mean everybody has a camera. Exactly. I get it. You touched upon a number of kind of attitudes and stuff. For something like this to work, do we have to kind of shift our perspective on how we deal with the poor, for example, how we look at money, how we deal with government? Like, is there kind of a radical paradigm shift, I guess, for lack of a better term, in how we view these things before this kind of could take off and to kind of have more traction? That's intriguing. I think a lot of our issues are are psychological. And I think in some respects, the radicalization took place in the 80s. And that was the neoliberal radicalization that all of a sudden, somehow, I mean, through a, a whole lot of different factors, people were convinced that looking after yourself was going to amount to social good, which is nonsense. Greed is good. Greed is good. The more you can accumulate, the better. I mean, that that whole pattern of society has been structured on that. So when you look at some of the documents that were written in the 1970s, when people were starting to really be concerned with and understand poverty more deeply, when ideas about basic income first started coming forward in a real policy sense, I mean, the concept has been around for decades and decades. And like I said, in in all of the faith-based traditions. I mean, the concepts have been there. But in policy terms, it was really starting to be discussed in the 70s. You go back and read those things now, like, I mean, you'd be amazed at the feeling, the emotion, the compassion, the care in them. Everything we talk about now is in dollars and cents. You know, well, that it's, was it's also, devoid of humanity. Right. That was also Reagan, too, undoing a number of social programs. That's what fueled a lot of the free market forces that you just mentioned a few yeah. minutes ago. and So that, to me, in a lot of respects, is the radicalization. And we are now starting to see the real consequences of that. The hopeful part of it is that a lot of people are starting to see that, which is why so many people are coming to basic income from different directions. So there are the environmentalists who know that the kind of accumulation and resource depletion we've been living on is endangering our planet. You've got people understanding that the human rights framework and democratic functioning we've got doesn't work if people don't have access to money and, you know, some ability to have some power and influence in society. So, you know, people coming from all of the, from faith-based traditions, again, understanding that we've lost our way in trying to find the common good and look after each other and respect freedom and human dignity. So a lot of that I see as hopeful if we can overcome some of these other trends. And then we have sort of new things like technology, which has kind of different aspects to it as well. There are some people who are arguing we shouldn't be worried too much about technology, artificial intelligence, the robots are coming. Because we've been through technological... <laughs> the robots are here. Because we've been through technological upheaval before. The jobs aren't lost, or some of them are, but new ones come along, and, you know, we'll all manage. Well, first of all, lots of people died during those transitions. Yes. And lots of people were really hard done by through those. The second is that, I mean, we have people working in high-tech industries, I mean, in some of the most advanced artificial intelligence fields imaginable, on our board and within our networks. And people like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, I was listening to the head of Slack the other day, they see this time really as different. The change is so exponential that we really are kind of endangering ourselves. Yeah, if there's we gonna don't be... figure out how to be human beings 
before the robots take over. The hard part is I think we haven't figured out where the point of no return is. When you go to the beach, you kind of know the first couple of steps you take is only up to your ankles, maybe up to your knees. And then there's, <laughs> yeah, a, there's that yeah. just drop off. And then all of a sudden there's a tsunami uh, yeah. and it's like, oops. <laughs> yeah. And so we don't have that like same kind of like area where we know this is like the drop off and this is where the, now you're in the ocean. Exactly. So we don't have a point of no return. And so we're kind of making this up as we go along. And, and even in really mundane policy terms, I have friends, former colleagues, who, whose work was to do projections for public policy, for our pension system, whatever. And they would project 30 years out. Nobody knows what things are going to look like 30 years out. So it's just no, Nobody will do that anymore. 30 minutes out now? Yes. <laughs> you brought up faith-based organizations. And this is a bit of a tangent, but I want to go down this road. And then we can come back, we can circle back to basic income. But one of the tenets in a number of faith-based organizations, especially like Christianity, for example, they have this idea of debt forgiveness. And we've seen this with like Mm. African nations and things like that in the last few years. We had Jubilee years and things like that Mm -hmm. uh, leading up to the year 2000. And you see that strongly in the Quran as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so we applied that to nations and that helped and that gave them a lot, like a leg up, literally a leg up. And it Mm -hmm. kind of got rid of a lot of debt for them. Could we apply that somehow to individuals as well, or would that get too complicated? See, this is fascinating. Those, I mean, those kinds of ideas, if you start looking at scripture and looking at the kinds of things that were written, there was a scholarly conference on faith and basic income last October. And one of the people who spoke said, obviously, I went back and I looked at the scripture and you will not find the words basic income anywhere. But you will find references to all of these kinds of things. And you're right. A lot of the idea of debt forgiveness in indigenous traditions, there's this lovely idea of enoughness. Oh, that's cool. Which is lovely and sane in, you know, the the environmental crisis we're, we're living with. So all of these ideas are cause for us to really stop and rethink where our governments and where our policies have been going over the last little while because they don't seem to be resonating with human well-being. And in terms of something like this, this would obviously have to be uh, run by a government, like agency or government arm of some kind. It couldn't be done privately or anything like that, right? Well, that's the issue. If it's not done democratically, yeah, then what happens to the freedom and dignity but then how do you how do you balance something like like this is a modern example but like so trump came in to the states and now he's trying to undo everything obama did just because it was obama and uh we don't have to go down that road completely but so what if you have one prime minister who says this is great let's do it and then four or five years down the road the next guy comes in and the next girl comes in is like this was a terrible idea and starts to undo it like how do we keep it going from government to government? Because governments will switch hands. But as you said, the people are here. The dignity needs to be reestablished. All these things um, need to flourish. And some governments are going to be crappier than others, for lack of a better term. So how do we transition from a Harper to a Trudeau or a Obama to a Trump? And yeah, keep I... this going? Honestly, I don't know what the answers to all of these things are, but one of the most interesting, I mean, I've read a lot lately, and it's not just about basic income, it's about all of these ideas about what the future holds. One of the most interesting is called Moral Tribes by Joshua Green. And so he goes through a, a lot. I mean, I can't can't deal with the whole book, but he, he looks at the different views of morality we have, different faith-based traditions, different cultures, different identities, all of these things that go along with our biology, essentially, as human beings. I mean, we have a lot of tribal in us. We do discriminate. We, do, we are hardwired to distinguish between us and them or between me and us. So he argues that we've done a really good job of the me-us. So the issue of my finding my identity within my group. What we've done a really bad job of as humans is figuring out how to deal with us-them in a large way. Because we were never meant to inhabit the whole planet everywhere like this. Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, but for one species to dominate a planet the way human beings have is just astounding. And genetically, biologically, 
you know, we're not quite there yet. So we've got this, you know, primal part of our brain that deals with things one way. And then we've got higher level brain functioning that allows us to do all kinds of amazing things and create new technology and all sorts of things. We have to start turning those, that higher level brain on to deal with our social interactions. And so he argues that we have to figure out how to do us them. We have to figure out where we have things in common rather than focusing on our differences so much. And we do have to listen to each other and have some faith in the evidence. I mean, there is evidence mm-hmm. that, I seriously, it, when you watch CNN all the time and listen to all the alternative facts that are floating around there, it's, it, it makes you a bit crazy. But there is evidence. I mean, there is solid evidence that should be used to help bring people together. There's a U2 song, uh, One, and um, there, the one of the last lines in the song is, we get to carry each other. And the writer Bono used the phrase, we get to, because he saw it as a privilege. It's not like he was mm. trying to admonish the crowd, like, we have to do this or you should do this. It's like, we get to. And it's recognizing that privilege that you're talking about is like, because we're all, we're 7 billion people, seven and a half stuck on this planet, we get to have this immense privilege and kind of mm-hmm. help each other mm-hmm. figure out a way out. But when we were talking about the point of no return, to go full circle back to that, with the, with for example, the First Nations and the way we've treated them here in Canada mm-hmm. and um, some of the way, some of the poverty that's in the States, for example, is there a point where a basic income may not necessarily be enough to kind of help get them slightly out of that poverty level? Is it like, are we slipping far too far like before to like implement this? Or are, is there still, yeah, is the window there to implement basic income for people like that who are so far below down the poverty line? Yeah, so that is one of the key things about basic income or about our definition at Basic Income Canada Network of what a basic income is, is that it's unconditional and it is sufficient to meet basic needs. So you do have to have something that is close to the poverty line or close to some reasonable measure of what it takes to live a half-decent life in this society to meet, I mean, material needs, but to be able to participate in society too, not just to feed yourself. What is the poverty line roughly now, 20, 25, 30? So 22,000 is a figure that we're working with to look at trying to, to model a basic income. But I want to go back to the point, too, about, you know, sort of being included and being able to be part of society. And there's a lovely little video by, I might get this wrong, Anthony... Wright Rogers or Anthony Rogers Wright. He's an American. He's working with people from the Leap Manifesto in Canada now too. But there's a beautiful little clip done of him by an outfit called Bootstraps in in the States. And he talks about when you're living in poverty, when you can't meet your needs, when like it's like walking around with blinders on. You can't focus on anybody else. You can't focus on anybody else's problems. You can't understand what's going on with the rest of the world. You are simply focused on your own personal, how you are going to get through the next hour, the next day, the next whatever. So this idea of having common humanity really is a privilege now. Like if you don't have even the ability to get outside of your own head because you're in so much pain and suffering and deprivation that you can't understand your neighbors. I mean, that's a horrible place we've put too many people in in our societies. What you're talking about, is it dignity then? A lot of it is dignity. Dignity via basic income. How is that different than, like, say, charity, which is kind of the other model that we have, right, where you give to the Salvation Army or to these other nonprofits, and it's like, here you go, and then this helps homeless people or... Yeah, this is one of these cultural shifts that you were talking about right. earlier that really is kind of tricky because there are a lot of people who are doing amazing work out of the goodness of their hearts. The story about one man who, after a career doing other things, took over the the running of a local food bank. 
and had trouble persuading a lot of the donors and helpers in in what he was doing to understand that they really don't want to provide food to people. It's, we should be working our way out of business. We want people to be able to shop at grocery stores the way everybody else does. Build an obsolescence. Yeah. And that wasn't easy. And it's not easy. But there's also another side to things that I think people forget. And that's that a lot of service provision also provides a lot of community. So it doesn't have to be about the Lady Bountiful syndrome where you've got people with privilege and money giving to the less fortunate, which is horrible. I mean, nobody wants to accept charity in under those. I mean, charity is supposed to mean kindness. You don't want it under those circumstances. But sort of the organization around food banks, around programs in church basements, around community centers, focuses on other things. Like it brings people together. And it brings people to understand common concerns in their community. You know, like how do we start a garden in our community because we need it? How do we, you know, make our environment in the neighborhood safer for people walking around in it? Those sorts of things. So it doesn't have to be a one-way, the privilege giving to somebody else. So there's a lot of work that can be done by organizations for people who do want to give back to their communities but on a much more egalitarian basis. It's interesting. I saw something recently where, um, you know how sometimes on the subway they'll have uh, non-profit organizations and they'll have like little people like volunteers and they have like little buckets and then you just kind of give a couple of quarters or some toonies mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those days and they were it was um, a homeless organization and uh, this was in College Station and so they were all um, shaking the uh, little buckets ahead and you can hear the change and they're yelling and asking people for donations and stuff. And just down the hall in the same station was a homeless dude just sitting there. And this woman stopped and she actually gave the homeless dude money and she was kind of talking to him. And it and it's just a weird moment because it's like, well, you could give to the organization because that's what they're doing. They're helping this dude. But then she's actually making the actual connection with the person. And it's like the dignity that I was bringing up. Right. Like it's like she's dealing with him as a human being and talking to him and kind of connecting with him. Yeah. And just the fact that so many people in so many organizations have to be out there trying to collect change for things. I mean, I just find that really depressing. And if you think, I mean, maybe it's just me, I don't know, but I would much rather pay more tax knowing that my fellow, my neighbors, my other people living in this country with me in every part of the country, no matter who they are, no matter what they're doing, no matter what choices they make for their own lives, that they have a half-decent chance rather than having to depend and to make the horrible decisions about, I can't put money into every one of these boxes. What do I do? I, that really disturbs me. Like, we should be able to construct a society where everybody has a half-decent chance and a half-decent life. I think some of the things that get overlooked uh, with basic income, for example, is that just even a few more dollars for, like, a month or per year, whatever, for a woman would give her better choices in terms of the dude that she's with. And she wouldn't have to be forced to go with the dude with the leather jacket who might be abusive or whatever. And so that type of freedom and that type of independence, we don't always tend to focus on those type of uh, benefits, mm-hmm. right? We just focus on yeah. the free money or and things like that. But it's like something like that, you wouldn't necessarily have to donate to like women's shelters or other things like this. Now you're f- providing for them independence, like if we pass this through. Yep. And that's why we have people from the shelter movement on our board as well. <laughs> yeah. And starting to gain strength from from some other women's organizations as well, because it has, there are huge gender equality implications for this it's not really simple that might be a whole other conversation one day but there is that there's also I was struck by one person at a conference that that we organized a little while ago with some people there was a man there who talked about how he had done a bunch of things wrong in the past he had paid for it and that sort of thing but was really trying to straighten his life around to be a good dad for his son and working and doing whatever he could. But he said he was, in his estimation, about $400 a month would save him 
from living in constant crisis. The crisis of his car breaking down and he can't get it fixed fast enough to get to work at a new job that day, so they fire him. Or like any number of things go wrong in our lives, in everybody's lives. When you've got money, those things are inconveniences. When you don't have money, they are a catastrophe waiting to happen and they just compound. So we definitely want basic income to ideally to be at a poverty line to make sure that everybody is really solidly secure. For lots of people, small amounts of money do make a huge difference, and they've shown that in pilots around the world. Kevin Smith had this, this is a strange um, comparison analogy, but Kevin Smith, the filmmaker, when he made his first movie, he made it for $20,000, and so they were scrimping and trying to save every dime and whatever. And then it sold well, it sold at Sundance, all this, and then he got to do a studio movie, and they gave him $12 million. And it was like this ridiculous, he didn't know how to even spend it. And so uh, when the producer would come to him and we have this problem, he's just, he just like throw 10,000 or something at it and just like try and make it go away. <laughs> right. And it's just like, yeah. that's what you're talking about. It's just more like, money, more problems. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get it. Right. And it's just like, it was just a transition from like scrimping and scrimping and scrimping. And I don't think we can choose, do the shot to like, what, let's get a helicopter. Like, so this is fascinating because I mean, on a much smaller scale, but now that they've started. Uh, sending checks out to people in the Ontario pilot uh, in the Hamilton area. There were a couple of articles that I saw in the press where people did talk about that stress of now having to make decisions about their money. But they said the upside was that they were coming out of their chronic depression. So a little bit of stress over how do I spend the money and whatever was okay. Like we think we can deal with that. So it'll be fascinating to watch as the pilot unfolds and seeing, you know, what happens to people's material circumstances, but I think also to their mental health and their ability to engage in in parts of society. I mean, one person talked about, you know, being able to spend Christmas with family for the first time in a long, 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 long time because they couldn't afford to travel. I mean, those, those things are huge for people's psyches. And you mentioned the pilot program that's going on in Ontario right now. So we have it in Hamilton. Uh, Thunder Bay? So Hamilton, Brantford area Yeah. in Lindsay, Ontario, and some surrounding areas, and in Thunder Bay. And then I believe they're still working on a separate uh, First Nations pilot Okay. as well. Uh, how long has this been going on in terms of um, the Ontario pilot program? And can you just kind of give us a breakdown of like uh, what they're getting and how it's working? Yeah, so the details of this have faded a little bit in my mind over the last while. But I think essentially the, they're hoping to have a total of like 4,000 participants across these different communities. There's sort of random control trials in the Hamilton-Brantford area and in Thunder Bay. In Lindsay, a fairly high proportion of people in that community are going to be getting it. So it becomes a little bit more like a saturation site of the kind that was experimented in the 1970s in Dauphin, Manitoba. The difference is in in the random site, I mean, you just have people here and there getting the basic income. Nobody really knows who gets it. You kind of function as an individual. The the data is gathered on what happens with you. But in a community-wide setting where a whole lot of people are getting it, more like a saturation site, then you're more likely to see community-wide effects. So what happens when a whole range of people are getting it? And how does that change the way the community works? How do social services change? How do your relations with your neighbors change? How does your perspective on poverty and who's poor and why they were poor and that sort of thing? Your relationship to money, too. Well, yeah, exactly. That's a weird relationship. Because like you said, we, we agree like this paper that says 10 on it is $10 and this other one is 20 so it's $20. And we're hustling and trying to get all this paper. But now it's like when it comes and it's just like you said, you, you less stress now. Now mm-hmm. you can maybe afford the car mm-hmm. payments and you can mm-hmm. afford things. And so, yeah, your relationship to money and, and work, as you said at the top, it's totally changed. And kind yeah. of like now you have to do this shift and this kind of emotional, psychological work. Yeah. So just for people who aren't familiar with Dauphin, so this was the 1970s. The experiment ran about four years. Then it was shelved for 
political and other reasons, and the, the box is sat in a warehouse until an economist named Evelyn Forget went looking for the boxes and went looking for ways to start analyzing what went on. The boxes proved a bit daunting, but she found, interestingly, other sources of information that were possible because Medicare started at around the same time. So she was able to look at a lot of effects that they weren't even looking for at the time. All the experiments in the 70s were looking at potential work disincentives. So on that front, what we find in Dauphin, in this community, is that there was very, very little reduction in work effort. Where you saw it was not really reduction in work effort. It was reduction in paid jobs for young people who stayed in school longer and graduated, and for new mums who didn't have a whole lot of access to maternity benefits then, enabled them to stay home a little bit longer with infants. Both very positive social things. So this idea of work, as I started out with way back, like we have this really strange idea that work equals a paid job for somebody else according to somebody else's rules. That's crazy. But aside from the work incentive, disincentive thing that we find, she also found significant reductions in things that lead to healthcare costs in our system. So reductions in mental health problems, reductions in accident and injury, and as I said, improvement in education. Kids staying in school longer and therefore their economic prospects improve down the road. Kids get off to a healthier start when their parents are at home for them. So all of these things were very positive on a community-wide basis, the effect was much larger than can be accounted for by the people in the program. So for example, here's how it would work if you have a bunch of high school kids whose parents had previously been pressuring them to go out and get a job rather than finishing high school because the family needed the income. So you have a few kids who, you know, had good reasons for not going back to school, but once they had the ability to go back, the peer effect amongst others who might have had a choice, they also went back to school. So you've, you've got this whole compounding effect. So that community aspect of a saturation site is, is going to be fascinating. And people in Lindsay are really pumped for this. I could imagine. And I mean, I've spent some time in Windsor, Ontario, and like this was a few years, this was many years ago, so when all the car factories were thriving and and a lot of people just didn't even consider university didn't like just knew like they were just going to end up like mom and dad at mm -hmm, working on the mm -hmm, line or mm -hmm. doing something related to the in some sort of a min job or whatever just working for the car factory yeah. and it's just like like you said it's the pure effect everybody around them is working for gm or ford or something mm -hmm. and so they don't really question it and it's like when you talk to them like don't you want to go travel or like do something <laughs> or like be a lawyer or anything? They're like, why? It's just like this is a good job. It's a good pay. And I mean, this was a this is many years ago, so the logic was sound. Their logic was sound, but yeah, I'd say, yeah, yeah. I, but like, that logic doesn't hold up anymore. Correct. And the circumstances don't hold up anymore. I mean, work in terms of paid jobs is becoming more and more precarious for everybody. Home ownership is becoming you know way out of bounds for most people. Family formation is becoming a much, much harder decision for young people than it ever was. And the old days where you could sort of see a path into a car plant that would get you like a good job and a reasonable... I, I have a brother-in-law who like walked out of school before finishing high school and literally could walk down the street and have his pick of half a dozen jobs. I mean, you can't do that anymore. There's a lot of agony I think young people go through around what should I do? What can I do? What is going to be a career path or something that's going to get me somewhere? And we don't have the flexibility in our, flexibility in our system now to be able to allow people to try things out. And a basic income would allow that. If you have a creative passion, indulge it for a while. Maybe it won't work out, but you're not going to starve to death and have your whole future ruined because you made that decision. Or even picking something that looks like it's going to be a really good path and a really good job, and you find two months later that that plant 
has moved somewhere out of the country. You made what you thought was a really good and wise decision, and it simply did not work out. And again, you don't have the flexibility to rebound from that because our systems, they're just not designed for the way people have to live now. You're talking about risk management in a way because this is what makes rich people successful is risk management. They have all the education and they can know which company to buy and like this is a good stock to buy. You don't just spend money foolishly because then you would no longer be rich. So you do risk management to know where investments and which real estate to buy and things like this. Poor people or middle class, even lower middle class people sometimes don't have all the tools and resources for risk management. And so they go down and like, maybe this job will open up doors, whatever, and then the factory closes or whatever. And then it's like, well, that's it. Like, we're not selling soup anymore. And then what do you do? So this would actually provide risk management and allow them to make better choices. What you're kind of getting at. Well, you would have choices. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, now there aren't. But yeah, you, you raised this earlier too, this whole question of, of attitudes to round, around money has a lot to do with experience of money. Yeah. You know, and what you have or haven't had. I'm not supposed to talk about family because my kids get really annoyed with me. But my son went to school in the States on a, on a scholarship at a university with a whole lot of really, really wealthy people. And he was just astounded by the difference in attitude people had towards trying things, towards money, towards all kinds of things. Like you, you don't worry. You take risks. You make mistakes. You don't, you don't even conceive of the fact that you could fail half the time. Whereas people with low income, where you've never had that level of comfort, where you've never been able to take even minor risks, and where you're usually blamed for any kind of mistake, no matter who makes it, you, you tend to get very withdrawn about things. I mean, you, you look at money very differently. You don't look at things as opportunities in the same way. So I think having the security and the dignity of a basic income matters almost as much as the actual amount of money. Yeah. I was in a casino not too long ago and the first floor was like slot machines and it was like one cent, five cent, 25 cents, a dollar. And then for like me, that's nothing. I put in a couple of quarters and then uh, they just went away. But when you get to the third floor, there was uh, slot machines, but they were $100 and $500. And I was watching this one dude putting in $500 coins, like the way I was putting in quarters. And he just he just lost $1,000 instantly in like seconds. Then he put another one and another one. He lost $2,000 the way I was losing quarters. And it's what I'm talking about, like the relationship with money. I'm like, $2,000 is a lot of money. I lost $2 downstairs. I'll be fine. I just don't get a tea next time at Starbucks. But $2,000, that's like... And he's so the really, there. And the really horrifying thing about your story is that that in general is the way our economy is running now. Correct. It's a casino economy. It is. You're just hoping for a lottery. Like, you just you're literally hoping for a lottery. Like, you buy a lot of 649 or whatever, or you just do a scratcher, and then you just hope you make it big. Or and it's, and it's built around money who can buy, I mean, around people who can buy luxury goods and toys, and they're driving all of the decisions that are being made about what gets produced, how things happen, what kinds of government decisions are being made. I mean, it's, it's quite frightening when you look at that. But again, as I said, on the positive side, I think you've got a lot of these young high-tech entrepreneurs who are realizing that this is unsustainable. You have environmentalists realizing this is unsustainable. And you have, if you check out the internet and look at what happened at Davos last year and this year, where the world's elites and moneyed people get together to talk about things, they're now talking about basic income. Because they, too, I think, realize it's unsustainable. So people like Warren Buffett. Um, He's in, been great. In the film Free Lunch Society, you have Gertz Werner in Germany, I think, who is hugely wealthy and influential businessman. Again, talking about the same kinds of things. We can't run human societies this way. You bring up Free Lunch Society, and they mention a number of different countries, like Finland, for example, 
that are kind of operating and experimenting and having pilot programs. And like you said, we're doing it here in Ontario. Are you seeing consistent feedback, consistent positive success, or is there like some of the criticisms that people have of this of these programs? Are they kind of coming to fruition? So this is fascinating for me. And I hear a lot of people saying, there are two sides of this. Some people are saying, we know enough already, forget the pilots, we're just wasting time, get on with it. Yeah, I'm in, yeah, I'm in. And then we have other people who are saying, no, we need to pilot and test out different ways of doing things. I can kind of see the merits in both, I think. And if politically you have to pilot before you can get people to buy in to do something, there is merit to that. And we can learn new things and we can learn details about how you administer things. But in general, one of the most fascinating things for me is if you look at the pilots that were run in the 1970s in the United States and Canada, there were several. If you look at pilots that are running, I mean, Ontario's just started, so we don't have results yet. But if you look at the results of Canada's child benefit system, that's a partial basic income. If you look at the results of our seniors' benefits, if you look at pilot results from India, Namibia, Kenya, everywhere around the world, the same pattern emerges. And that pattern is of, as you said, choices. So you make better ones. There are improvements in education. There are improvements in health. There are improvements in employment and entrepreneurship. People who are able to establish their footing in the economy who were formerly excluded. You have reductions in violence, particularly gender-based violence. You have empowerment of women that's quite extraordinary in some of these cases. You have reductions in what we fear are the bads. You know, say people get free money, they're going to drink it away. Well, you actually have reductions in alcohol and tobacco and those sorts of things. You have significantly improved nutrition. We have studies in Canada who show that food insecurity or food security improves tremendously between near seniors and seniors, meaning if you're on the verge of, of poverty, getting that regular basic income every month through your OAS GIS means that your food security improves enormously. So the pattern of benefit is the same everywhere. No matter what country, no matter what other kinds of social infrastructure are in place or not, and we obviously need a lot of that social infrastructure, especially in industrialized countries. I mean, you don't want to give that sort of stuff away in favor of basic income. You need both. I mean, you need income, you need to be able to have a transit system that's reliable, that gets you places. Which brings up the point of how how do we pay for this or how do we fund this is the million dollar literally the million dollar question now, like all right so no, there's no, all it's, these it's billions of dollars billions yeah of dollars. when we get to it yeah uh, but yeah so if all these benefits are great and how do we then make this happen because Canada would seem to be more easier to kind of pull this off because we're what thirty thirty five million people give or take. And so Canada as a country seems more um, malleable and kind of like we can kind of pull it off here versus, versus like the states, which is 330 million people with all kinds of different economic levels. So I think there are a number of different questions in there. Yeah, and, I threw and, a lot at you there. And my, brain, and my brain might forget some of them on the way because I do that. But in general, the paying for it question is really interesting. And like I said, I think the radicalization of our thinking and our like cognitive dissonance began in the 1980s. There is money floating around in the system. Sir Michael Marmot, who's the head of the World Medical Association, has written about the health gap, the income gap, about ideas like basic income. And he says, basically, we're sloshing in money. You know, it's just, it's not getting to the people who need it. It's being hoarded by people who don't and don't even have a clue how to, I mean, you've got so much you can't spend it. You can't even do anything with it. It's not improving productivity. It's not improving any of the actual goods we have or the reach of goods to people. So there is money out there. And in almost every country, there's money, even in countries that appear that have, you know, large populations living in poverty, they've got resource income that's going to a small handful of people. 
we have subsidies in our system going to corporations that are quite frankly unbelievable. Canada's tax system has a whole range of refundable and non-refundable credits that go out for all kinds of things. If I recall correctly, I mean about 102 billion goes out and the vast, vast majority of that goes to people in the top income decile. The system works. None of it goes to those who need it. So the money's there. I mean, anybody who says it's not is just irrational. The money's there. It's a matter of redistribution. And we have to look at how we can do that better, how we do it so that it's not too much of a shock to the system. And there are lots and lots of ways that we can do that. There are lots of examples of how it's been done. Alaska has a permanent fund set up on a resource base. There are other ways of setting up sovereign wealth funds that don't depend on resources, but that collate the wealth of a country and then figure out how to distribute it better so that everybody can, can share in the benefits. How close is something like this to, to happening? Is it like the self-driving cars? Because they keep saying self-driving cars will be out by like 2018, 2019, 2020. Like it, and there are self-driving cars on the road as we speak, but it's not in any sort of mass production. So how, and, and that's again. So, so again, this is, this is a matter of political will. Like I said, so, so the money's there. We have the technology and the mechanisms to get it to people. It's a matter of political will how we do this. But the other thing that I wanted to mention on money before we forget this is that we are already paying too much trying to deal with all of the problems that our system has created. It is costing us a fortune. Basic income in the end is going to be no more expensive than that and it's going to get results that none of the rest of this stuff that we've been doing is getting. We pour enormous amounts of money into quote-unquote poverty reduction. It's not working. If you talk about pilots, we've been piloting this stuff for 50 years. It doesn't work. We need to try something else. I mean, it's crazy. And then the other part of your question that I wanted to answer was, <laughs> had to do with the U.S. And, but it's different countries have different contexts. That's why so, I brought that up, yeah. So... The way a basic income gets implemented and what it looks like is going to be different in each context. From that perspective, I think Canada's already halfway there. I think we probably have the best chance in the world of being first out of the blocks on this if, if we can manage the political will to do it. The United States is a very particular... This is online radio. You can you can swear here. <laughs> kind of. Well, Guy Standing, who is a founder of the International Basic Income Earth Network and has written a great deal. He's formerly from the International Labor Organization. He's written a great deal on precarity, precarious workforce, and basic income. And he wrote, and I forget the exact context of the book, but he said, you know, like, basically we're we're creating this monster kind of thing. And apparently very shortly after Donald Trump was elected, he got inundated with emails saying the monster has arrived. So this monster is someone who is feeding off of a populist discontent with the fact that the current system is not working, but it's offering solutions that aren't gonna work either. So it's exploiting the fear, right? So the United States right now is exploiting the fear. It is the driver of corrupt capitalism everywhere around the world. I mean, it's, it's really leading this. And it seems to have the least ability to be able to look at its own self and understand its own failings and its own need to do better somehow that's well put well i don't know like there's this sense of just we're the best there's no evidence to back up almost anything they say but the, the delusion is really strong but that's the delusion is the american dream though yeah and that's we were talking about this with like the lottery idea right and it's like 
Part of the problem, I think, is that sometimes Americans are hesitant, even poor Americans are hesitant to tax the rich or to go after the rich is because they know they're going to end up there one day. That's the belief. That's the lie that they've accepted. So they don't want to yeah. wreck the system because when they get there, when they get to the promised land, when they build this amazing app that will just make them a billion dollars, they don't want to have to face these consequences, right? So they're, in a weird sense, they're kind of okay with the current system that's in place because they don't think they're going to be there for much longer. There, yeah. There is yeah. a mentality that... So again, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard to figure out what, what's going on in the States and what's going to happen. There are some people who believe that, in fact, what's happening right now might be the biggest stimulus you could get for a basic income because the current administration is going to wreck so much of every other part of the social welfare infrastructure that would take years and years and years to rebuild, that so much of that is going to be destroyed, that the only way they're going to be able to cope with a hostile, increasingly angry and divisive population is to bring in something like a basic income fast in order to calm things down. So there's that theory. Then there's another, one of the most fascinating books I've read lately is called, a book called American Slavery, American Taxation. And it's about the foundation of the Constitution in the United States, the foundation of the country, and how governments and taxation have run. Apologies to the author. I'm, you know, because I'm, I'm going to like totally oversimplify this and, and miss like many, many of the, the really important points in the book. But essentially, the American economy and taxation structure and government has its roots in slavery and it still exists. And the way it has developed in the country is such that taxation is seen as an evil government programs are seen as government programs for black people and that racial divide is so strong that it has caused this anti-government sentiment and anti-tax sentiment and anti-cooperative sentiment that they just can't get over it. On the positive side, all of the demographics that showed how Trump got elected showed that he would never have won if it was the younger demographic that determined the election. So some people say he represents the last gasp of the old white guys. And I have lots of black family in the States, so I hope that's true. Um, it's funny you bring up the, uh, the tax code. I was shocked a few years ago, uh, Donald Sterling was the owner of the Clippers. He got, he made some racist comments, and the NBA forced him to sell the LA Clippers. And Steve Ballmer, the um, former CEO of Microsoft, bought the team for $2 billion. It's an LA team. It's very expensive. So they bought it for $2 billion. However, he got a billion dollars back because they have a sports franchise ownership in their tax code, which only would affect, like, there's only, like, 30 NFL teams and 30, like, NBA teams. So it's like... You're talking like 60 or 70, 100 people tops of owners that would this. And so he got a billion dollars back out of this tax code. I'm like, why would you have this in your tax code? Like who, how many people are buying franchises of a NFL team Be or NBA team? Because all of the original tax codes were based on the idea that you, you couldn't tax slaveholders because... If you were a slaveholder, you thought that was really unfair, that you should get a break. And if you were of more abolitionist sentiment and didn't like the idea of slavery, you worried that taxing the slaveholders would simply pass down the burden of taxation to the slaves themselves who would have to work harder to produce because the slave owners would always get their money back. And that's exactly the way things work now. And it's exactly why, I mean, people keep arguing that we have to give all of these tax breaks and all of these subsidies to corporations because if we don't, they won't create jobs and they won't hire people. Well, they're not creating jobs now anyway. Mm -hmm. So, like, <laughs> yeah. that argument's over. And the slavery argument should have been over a long, long time ago. But 
those roots are there. So, again, this is a tangent, and I know we're taking up a lot of time, but <laughs> this is a tangent, but I find this fascinating. So, one of the things that was kind of floating around and still kind of floating around, especially in the States, uh, more so with the slavery and black people in the States, is this idea of reparations and 40 acres and a mule and mm. things like this. So... And in here in Canada, um, our, we've been, again, I brought this up before, but we've been horrible to our First Nations and stuff like this, and they deserve some sort of reparations or some sort of like, we're sorry for not giving you adequate drinking water. <laughs> I was like, we were horrible. But how does, how does a basic income kind of either negate reparations or place reparations, or is it a completely different idea? Are these two different things? Can they coexist? Wow, that's a... That's a difficult one, and I haven't given a lot of thought to that. And I, I mean, I do think they are separate things, because if you can bring in a basic income, I mean, I think that's geared to the future. I mean, I don't think you can go back and, and, the reparations and try to do the reparation. I mean, the reparations question, I think, stands on its own. But one of the other interesting aspects, aspects of that, though, is... Again, it links very much to this idea of basic income and the common good and allowing people, you know, some means of livelihood in a society. So at first, it wasn't money. For the longest time, it was the 40 acres and a mule. It was land primarily that was given away. Now, the fact that it was given by people who had to steal it from the indigenous populations... We gloss it over. In the first place, we, you know. <laughs> gloss it over. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the idea was that you would give people, like you gave new immigrants land, and particularly new white immigrants were given land at points to help improve the percentage of white population in the southern states. But the idea was to give them a good start, to give you something that would allow you to establish an economic foothold. You know, you could grow things, you can feed your family, you can, you know, you can make it in this country because a lot of people came over impoverished with nothing. So there was a recognition that you need something to start with. You can't be economically productive first and then get the reward. You need, you need some investment to start with. So, I mean, as misguided as all of this land stuff was, we're not talking land. Like, nobody's going to give away land in Toronto. There isn't any. Not even a hundred stories <laughs> yeah. up in the air, there isn't any land to yeah. give away. And what are you going to do with a mule? So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. But the idea of redistributing income, I mean, money is the universal thing now. That if you can redistribute so that people have some stake in the economy and some ability to participate, that... I think can go a long way to start in a forward-looking way, correct a lot of the imbalance and, I mean, the horrendous treatment of blacks and indigenous people, various waves of immigrants that, you know, come through and, and go through poverty in our countries. And, you know, back to that, that bootstraps film, like you need to allow people to take blinders off and just focus on their own situation. I mean, we have more and more diverse and multicultural societies. If people are going to live together, you have to allow them the space and the opportunity and the security to be able to do that. You mentioned this is the roadblock in Canada as political will. How do we make this happen? What do we have to do to, like, let's do this. I'm in. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how do we support you what do we do we write to our mp what do we do like who's the face like who's like like you mentioned even like warren buffett and uh elon musk and stuff are like leading the charge but in canada how do we who's the who's so, the big face of the place so in canada the big face for a long time has been hugh siegel i mean for a long long time he has he has been fighting this fight and people see him as a conservative senator ex-senator now He's the, the head of Massey College. To me, Hugh is one of the most decent, compassionate human beings you will ever find. And his interest in basic income is as a human being. But in recent years, like I said, with the establishment of Basic Income Canada Network, and we're a really loose affiliate. I mean, there were people who are part of the network 
some of whom, I mean, we'll do things together. There are lots of local groups. So if you go on our website, you can get lots of information. You can see who's doing things in different communities. I plugged Check the website. that out. So that's just basicincomecanada.org or just Google Basic Income Canada. I think we're the first thing that shows up. So there's lots of information there, lots of ways to get involved. For people around this geographical area in particular, if you're interested in learning more and meeting other activists as well, we are hosting BICN, the Basic Income Canada Network, and US Big are hosting the 17th Annual North American Congress at McMaster University in Hamilton, May 24 to 27 this year. So, and we've got room for a, a good crowd. A lot of us who have been working on this are people who are retired and have the time and you know ability to be able to do this. We're seeing a lot of younger people get involved. So anybody who like wants to start student movements, we would encourage that. Right to MPs. I mean, there are lots of people who are getting interested in this. So. Hugh Siegel is sort of identified with the conservatives. Like I said, I just I think this, uh, this whole political spectrum just doesn't mean anything anymore. Art Eggleton, his co-author of a Senate report that included basic income ideas, Art Eggleton, Hugh Siegel, that perspective, Guy Caron, in the NDP, ran for the leadership on a basic income platform. There are resolutions in all the major political parties calling for this. So join a political party and get active in promoting this. The fact that we have community a groups, the fact that we have a pilot. Yeah. Does that mean like our government is in general kind of open to the idea? They're willing to explore it. They're like it's the opposite of kind of being hostile, I guess. Sometimes there are hostile certain ideas. So this the fact that we have a pilot and there are some people kind of in the political scene who are active means yeah. Some... So governments, other organizations, none are monolithic. Some organizations you'll find people in are very strongly pro-basic income. Others are really skeptical. But more and more people are talking about it. And the more people talk about it, the greater understanding there is. I think the more you will find people supporting it. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there. There's a lot of, like, you can get lost in the weeds really easily without, you know, forgetting the basic ethical premises of why you want to do this. So I think the more conversation, the better, and we do everything we can to try to encourage that. Encourage people to get involved just in, in any way they can and let their politicians know that they would support them. I think there, I mean, we have this idea that there are, closet supporters inside government if it's not in your party's platform you can't come out but they're sort of you know we kind of see the merit of this now somebody make us do it so that's i mean we're trying to inform a public and create an aware public who will help make the politicians do it all right that's a positive note because i i want we want to kind of see now if we can make this happen so thank you sheila for coming in and kind of breaking this down and like explaining uh, we covered a lot. Like, we did cover a lot. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, like you said, a lot of different issues and a lot of things to kind of consider. But I think for the most part, you sold me. So I'm in now. That's so. great. So you're going to come to Nabig now. Uh, there you go. We've, yeah. And we've got a whole we've got a whole section. We've got a filmmaker coming. Like we've got people talking about media's role in this too. All right. Everything. Yeah. So thank you for coming in and explaining this. And hopefully uh, next time you come in, we'll have like expanded past the pilot project maybe get a few more cities a province or two involved <laughs> so thank you fingers crossed thank you